This is KMTT, and this is Ezra Bick, and today is Monday, Tet B'Tevet. Tomorrow is Asara B'Tevet, and the Halakha Yomit today, after the Shir by Rav Khan, we'll deal, we'll discuss an issue dealing with the Ta'anit, with the Tzom of Asara B'Tevet. Today's Shir is the regularly scheduled Monday Shir of Rav Yair Khan in Hilchot Brachot. This is the second Shir in that series. And the share will be 32 minutes, starting immediately. In the previous year, we discussed the basic concept of Birchot Hanemin, focusing on the Gemara at the beginning of Ketzim Ravarkin, Aser lo la'adam le'anot min ha'olam hazeh below bracha. According to that Gemara, it is simply prohibited to eat, to partake, to benefit from this world without first acknowledging God's ownership over the world. Once we acknowledge God's ownership over the world, then HaKadosh Baruch Hu allows us to benefit and partake and to enjoy this world. The basic act of eating, which was prohibited before making the bracha, becomes pro- permitted after making the bracha. The bracha is an acknowledgement of God's ownership over the world. And by making that bracha, by acknowledging God's ownership over the world, the same eating which was previously prohibited all of a sudden becomes permitted. What I would like to do in this week's Shira is to perhaps develop a different idea regarding Birchot Hanenin, which doesn't necessarily contradict the first idea, but it perhaps supplements and complements it. And I want to focus on a Gemara in Brachos 40a, Daph Memorimalis, which states as follows. Amarav Tobroch Tobroch Enutarosavarich. The Gemara is referring to somebody that spoke in between making a bracha and eating. Normally, one is not allowed to make any interruption between making a bracha and between eating. If one makes such an interruption, it's considered a hefsek, an interruption, and one has to repeat the bracha. The exception to that rule is if the interruption is l'tzorech ha-bracha. It's required for the bracha. And it's not simply an external interruption. Then that's not defined as a heftek, it's not defined as an interruption, and therefore he would not have to repeat the bracha. Based on that, Rav says as follows. If one made a mosi, let's say, at a meal, and then he made a mosi in order to, in order to eat bread for everybody sitting at the table. It's a Shabbos meal, he takes shtei lechem, two chalas, and he makes the mosi lechem na'aret for everybody sitting around at the table. Everybody answers amen. And then before eating from the, from the bread, he tells people, here, take a piece. Here, take a piece. And he offers the different people the piece of bread. That is not defined as an interruption. Rashi explains, Habotzea kodem shetaam mina prusa, the person who made the bracha, before he himself tastes from the piece of bread, Hoshid Lamisha at slow, he offered it to somebody sitting next to him, the Amalei told me Prusatabracha, please take from the piece of bread which I made a bracha on. Even though he spoke in the interim between making a bracha and eating, there's no necessity for him to go ahead and repeat the bracha. The Afa got the Sikhahaviafsaka, even though normally speaking is considered an interruption. Hach Sikhatorach Bracha, Velomisaka. 
What he said in this particular context was the Torah bracha, it was for the purpose, for the benefit of the bracha, and therefore it's not defined as an interruption. The Gemara continues, Rabbi Yochanan Amar, Afilu Haviu Melach, Haviu Liftan Nami in Even if one said, please pass the salt, so that in order that one can eat the bread with salt, or something else to dip the bread in, that's also not considered a hefsik. Rashi explains, Haviu Melach, pass the salt, Nami ain't Tzachavarek, Sa'avzu, Tzorech Bracha, this is also not considered an interruption because it's for the benefit of the bracha because it allows the prusa, the piece of bread which you made the bracha on to be eaten in a tasty fashion. What we see from Rashi in both, based on both these statements is that there's a concept of prusa shal bracha. In other words, when one makes a bracha over a piece of bread, that bread becomes defined as a prusa shabracha, a piece of bread which bracha was made upon. And according to Rashi, not only does the piece of bread which you made a bracha upon attain the status of a prusa shabracha, but that status contains within it certain halachas as well. That prusa shabracha should optimally be eaten the time. And therefore, if you say pass the salt or pass something else to dip the bread in, it's not considered a hefsteak. It's a Torah bracha. Because the bracha includes not only making a bracha over food, but a bracha defines the food which you made the bracha on as a prusa shabracha. That piece attains the status of a prusa shabracha. And a prusa shabracha should be eaten the time. It should be eaten in a tasty fashion. And therefore, past the salt is not considered an interruption. Furthermore, not only should that piece of shabracha be eaten by me, it should also be eaten by everybody sitting around the table. And therefore, passing this piece of shabracha over to somebody sitting next to me and to say, here, please, take a piece of this bread, is also not considered a hefzik. This is also considered a shabracha. So what we see from Rashi is that when one makes a bracha, he's not merely acknowledging God's ownership of the world, which then allows me to eat from this particular piece of bread, but the bracha is chal on the bread. The bread attains the status of a prusa bracha. This idea comes to a very think, sharp uh, expression in Yerushalmi, in the sixth parish of Brachos, it's quoted by Tosos on the Aflam Tesselin Beis. According to Yerushalmi, if one made a bracha over, let's say, a fruit, there's a basket of fruit in front of him, and he picks one particular fruit out of that basket, one apple, and he makes a body priyayit on that apple, and that, that, that apple rolls out of his hand, and he's not able to eat that apple. And now he picks another apple out of the basket. According to Yushalmi, he has to make a second bracha on the second apple. The bracha which he made on the first apple is not sufficient. This is among the Rishonim and the, the Postkin exactly how to explain the Yushalmi. According to some opinions, the din of Yushalmi applies 
even if I intended to eat the second apple when I made the bracha on the first. In other words, you have a very, very absurd situation. Had I made a bracha on apple A and taken a bite out of apple A, I would have been able to eat apple B without making an additional bracha. On the other hand, if I made a bracha on apple A and that apple fell out of my hand, and now I take apple B, I cannot eat apple B without making an additional bracha on apple B. And the question is obvious. If I intended, when I made the bracha on apple A, to eat apple B, I understand why I don't have to make a bracha when I took a bite out of apple A. But I don't understand why I would have to make an additional bracha if apple A rolled out of my head. Does the bracha apply to apple B or does it not apply to apple B? If it does apply to apple B, why can't I eat it when apple A rolled out of my hand? If it doesn't apply to apple B, then why would I not have to make an additional bracha if I did take a bite out out of apple A and subsequently took took apple B to eat as well? From this Yerushalmi, again, we see that there's this idea of a pusa bracha. And based on this idea, I would suggest that when one makes a bracha on apple A, that apple attains the status of a pusa bracha. What one has to do is first initially eat from that pusa bracha, and then one can continue eating from the rest of the apples in the basket that he intended to eat. But if that pusa bracha fell out of his hand, then he has to make a second apple into a pusa bracha, and the only way that that can be accomplished is by making a second, second bracha on the second apple. Of course, you have to understand what this means. What I would suggest is as follows. That the way a bracha works, as we said before, is that by making a bracha, the particle of food that you make, made a bracha upon attains the status of a pusa bracha. The question is, what exactly does that mean? And what difference does it make, the fact that this becomes a pusa bracha? Let's recall that we also noted that according to Rashi, not only does the, this, the particle of food that you made a bracha on attain the status of a pusa bracha, but all of a sudden, eating that pusa sabracha became important as well. First of all, Rashi said explicitly that, that, that eating that pusa sabracha should be done in a tasty fashion, and therefore, if one interrupts between his bracha and eating, and he says, pass the salt, it's not considered aspic because it's a tzorach bracha. In other words, the bracha is not only a statement which acknowledges God's ownership over the world, but a bracha focuses on the food. The food becomes a st- attains the status of a pusa bracha, and subsequently, there's a kiyum. You fulfill some idea and concept by eating that bracha, and therefore, by eating that pusa bracha, and therefore the food should be eaten in a tasty fashion. Furthermore, according to this, we understand why there's no hefsek what I offer the Pusa Shabracha to other people. To have other people join me, the fact that they also eat from the Pusa Shabracha is also a kiyum in the Bracha itself. Now had 
the bracha being simply a statement of the ownership of God, that statement I made. The person sitting next to me, maybe he answered Amen. But he didn't make that statement. Apparently, there's a kiyum in eating the Prusish bracha itself. The question is, how does that work? What I would like to suggest is that once the food attains the status of a Prusish bracha, then eating the Prusish bracha is no longer simply a mundane act of deriving pleasure from the world, but rather that act is elevated into an act of worship, a worship, an act of Avodah Hashem. I'm no longer simply eating food which has no kedusha, which has no sanctity. All of a sudden I'm eating something which it has attained a certain amount of sanctity. It has attained the status of a Prusit Shabracha. I blessed this particular object of food. Now when I eat it, my act is not simply a mundane act of attaining pleasure, but rather it's an act of worship. It's an act of eating God's food, which He commanded that I eat. There are a number of different cases where eating is a kiwamitsa of fulfillment of, of God's will. For instance, the obvious cases are eating masa on Pesach, or eating mara, which is the Mitzvah or eating the Karban Pesach, the Chlal. In general, eating Karbanos, whether it's the Kohen or whether it's Yisrael, might be considered a Mitzvah as well. There's an argument among the Rishonim, perhaps, but basically eating a Karban is a Kima Mitzvah. According to the Rambam, perhaps only a Kohen makes a Bracha, according to other Rishonim, the Ramban, Rashi, anybody who, who eats from a Karban, is Makai a mitzvah and should make a bracha. When a coin eats chuma, he's fulfilling a mitzvah. In all these cases, the eating is not simply a mundane act, but the eating is an act of worship. In our case, we're not talking about a mitzvah achila. There's no command to eat this particular food. But nevertheless, when I made a bracha on this food, and my bracha focuses on this food, what I've done is I simply... I, 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 what I've done is I've changed the status of the food into becoming a Prusa Shabracha and when I'm eating I'm eating as an act of worship when I eat a Prusa Shabracha I have God in mind because I've simply I've, I've acknowledged the fact that God created this and I've focused the Bracha on this particular food and now I've elevated this this eating this act of eating a mundane act to a sanctified act of Avodah Hashem. That's, I think, what we see from the Rashi when he says that Tol Broch, you're offering the Prusa Bracha to somebody alongside me, is not considered a heftic, it's a Torah Bracha. In other words, the, the Bracha is Chal on the Prusa Bracha. The food attains the status of a Prusa Bracha. And eating that Prusa Bracha is an, is an act of worship, an act of Avodah Hashem. Let's now return to the Yushalmi. According to the Yushalmi, the, the way that bracha works is by a bracha being chal on apple A. I made a bracha on apple A. If I eat apple A, which is an act of worship, then I can continue to eat apple B, which is simply a regular mundane act of eating. In other words, what the Torah demands is that one at least begins 
initially with an act of worship, and then we can continue in our everyday life. A parallel would be, for instance, the fact that we begin our day by saying Kriyashma, by davening, and then we go, go ahead and do the rest of the things in our day. The fact that, you know, when we take, when we, when we grow, when we have an orchard. So we begin by the first fruit. Actually, the first three years it's after The fourth year, we take it to Shalayim, and we eat it as an act of worship in front of the Mikdash, and then we can continue by eating it ourselves. Every year, the first fruit, which is called Bikurim, we bring it to the Mikdash and we give it to the Kohen, and that becomes, again, a mitzvah, an act of worship, and then the rest of the fruit becomes ours. There's a general idea that HaKadosh Baruch is aware that basically we live in the mundane world, but we have to at least begin initially by an act of Avodah Hashem, and then we can continue to our own business. The same thing is, I think, what's happening here in Brachos according to Yerushalmi. We take apple A, and we intend on eating apple B as well. However, we focus our bracha on apple A. And when we eat apple A, it's an act of worship, an act of Avodah Hashem. And that allows us to continue and eat other things which we intended to eat as well. However, if apple A rolled out of our hands, and then we would pick up apple B, then we would be doing our mundane act of eating without the first initial act of Avodah Hashem. That's not allowed. And therefore, if apple A rolled out of your, your hand, and one picks up apple B, which one intended to eat initially, one has to repeat the bracha on apple B before he's allowed to eat it. By the way, this din of Yushalmi is brought down in Shulchan Aruch. The Machaber Ramah might argue exactly how to understand Yushalmi, but nevertheless, Yushalmi is brought down in Shulchan Aruch, Halacha Mamaisa. Based on this position, we can understand the very, very difficult opinion of one of the Ba'i Kosos, Rabbi Yosef Tovelem. Rabbi Yosef Tovelem wrote one of the piyutim that we, that some people say in the Yosef of Shabbat HaGadol, it's called Elokei Ruchot Lechol Basar, in which he took the Hilchot HaPesach and he put it to rhyme. And in that rhyme, which many of you have shown him, learned many different halachos from, in that rhyme, he says something which initially is, is quite shocking. He says that the reason that we eat karpas, karpas, which is eaten, one takes a, a yerek, um, some uh, cucumber or something else, a, a potato, the main different minhagin, and he makes a bar shadam at the beginning of the suda, and he eats usually the main minhagin is less than a kazayas, and then he says the entire, recites the entire haggadah, and only later on do we get to, to eating the matzah and the mora. According to Rabbi Yosef the reason that this halacha was instituted was in order that we should not have to make a bar piyadama on the maror itself. According to this opinion, the maror, even though we eat maror after making the mosi on the matzah, nevertheless, maror is not part of the suuda itself. Maror is not something which is normally eaten within the context of a suuda, and therefore the birchat hamosi, according to Yosef Tovelem, the birchat hamosi would not cover the maror. So if one had not eaten karpas, Previously, one would have to make a bar piyadama on the morrow. And that, according to Yosef Tovelem, is not allowed. Because if one would make both a bar piyadama on the morrow and an al-achilat morrow, 
then one would be making two brachos on one piece of marar, and that would be a problem of Ein Osem Mitzvot Chavilos Chavilos, which I could translate very, very roughly, one should not kill two birds with one stone. If one kills two birds with one stone, it shows that he has a very, very uh, bad attitude towards mitzvot. He's trying simply to get rid of them. He's not, he doesn't appreciate them enough. And therefore, one is not allowed to do mitzvot chavilos chavilos. For instance, the Gemara says that the mitzvah of, of let's say, hashka sota, if you have a sota in the mitzvah, one cannot be one should do one separately and the other separately one should not try to kill two birds with one stone it has to be separated each one each mitzvah has to achieve its independent significance therefore Yosef Tavon says one should not make both a Bori Priyadama and an Al-Khilas Maror on the same piece of Maror so what do you do? you make a Bori Priyadama on the Karpas half hour before 45 minutes, an hour before you made a Baruch Adama on the Maror, with intention, when you made that Baruch Adama to cover the Maror as well. That's the sheet of Rabbi Yosef Tavelin. Similarly, he says that when one eats matzah, one shouldn't make the motzi and alachiyas matzah on one piece of matzah, and therefore one makes the motzi on one matzah, and the alachiyas maror on a separate piece of matzah. And therefore, the minah that we eat, Tuesday. Obviously, Rabbi Yosef Tovelum didn't want to make a similar suggestion of eating two zaysin of moror because moror obviously bitter herbs and one does not want to eat two zaysin of moror. The problem with Rabbi Yosef Tovelum is that there's no mitzvot chavilos chavilos in this case. There are no two mitzvot. There's only one mitzvah. There's only the mitzvah of achilas moror. The bari priyadama that one makes is not a mitzvah but simply in order to enable us, to allow us to eat the maror, we have to make the bracha of Bari Adama. And then we do only one mitzvah. What? What mitzvah do we do? Achilas maror. There are no two mitzvahs over here. It's after lanos and all of bracha, and therefore we're not able to be kind the mitzvah of Achilas maror without first making a Bari Adama. So we make a Bari Adama. And then we make the Birchus HaMitzvah Al-Akhilas Maror, and then we do only one Mitzvah. What Mitzvah do we do? Eating the Maror. The same should be true by Motsi Matzah. We're doing only one Mitzvah. The Mitzvah that we're doing is Akhilas Matzah. In order to eat the Matzah, we also have to make a Motsi Lachem Otherwise, Aser Lola Adam Lehanos Mina Olam Azeb Bracha. Where are the two Mitzvahs over here? There's only one Mitzvah. Tosos and Aslam Testament days bring the opinion of Chavilos Chavilos, which we've attributed to Rabbi Yosef Tovelin, and then he continues, Venerally, Dahabi Bracha Shalmanin, the Einam Nikran Chavilos Chavilos. Since one of the Brachos is Birchofanenin, it's not Chavilos Chavilos. There's only one mitzvah that one does here. The other bracha is a birchot hananin, which simply enables us to do that one mitzvah. The question is, how are we supposed to interpret the shita of Rabbi Yosef Tovelet? Based on the way that we try to develop the concept of birchot hananin, I think the, the, the explanation is obvious. What we suggested is that the bracha of birchot hananin 
is chal on the thing that we're eating itself. And that thing that we're eating, that particle of food, attains the status of a process of bracha. And therefore, the act of eating itself has been elevated into an act of worship. There's a kium, a kium in eating from the Prusa Shabracha. Because it's not simply a mundane act of eating, but it's eating a Prusa Shabracha as an act of worship, as an act of Avodah Hashem. If so, when I make a Baruch Adama on Moror, and then I make an Achiyas Mata on that same Moror, the eating itself has two different kiyumim. First of all, it has the kiyum of eating maror, because eating maror on Lela Seder is a mitzvah. It has the kiyum of the mitzvah of Achilat maror. But secondly, it also has the second kiyum of eating the prusa shabracha. The kiyum, the act of Vodaf Hashem, that in, which eating the prusa shabracha entails. The eating itself has two different kiyumim. And therefore, that's the problem of ein osimitos The same is true when one is discussing moti matzah. First of all, if one made a brecha moti, and also achilas matzah, he's makayin mitzah of achilas matzah. There's a mitzah meyah said to eat, a kazayit of matzah. Secondly, he's also eating the prusa shabracha, the prusa which the bracha of hamotzi lechem na'aret was chal apart. And therefore, the eating is not only the mitzvah of achilas matzah, it's also the general mitzvah of, the, of eating a prusa shabracha, which is an act of avodah Hashem. By eating the same prusa, the same piece of matzah, which one made a motzi on, and one made achilas matzah on, one is fulfilling two separate kiyumim, and therefore the problem of ein osimiksos chavilos chavilos. Based on this idea which we've developed, there's another din which might be understood a bit better from this light. We all know that when one has a number of different, a plate of different food in front of him, then one should first make a bracha perhaps on on food which is one of the Zayin Hamidim Shnishtabcha Behem Eretisrael Zayinim which are you know pomegranate, rimon, zayit, anavim, grapes, olives, pomegranates those are the fruits which are Nishtabcha Behem Eretisrael based on the Pasuk Eretz Chita Usaora Eretz Chita Usaora Vegesen Uteina Verimon Eretz Zeshemen Udavash and here we learn the Zayinim and therefore, one should first make a bracha on Gesen, which is Anavim, which is grapes, Ta'enim, figs, Rimonim, pomegranates, Zayis, which is olives, Udvash, which is referring to Dvash Tamarim, Dvash that comes from, from dates. So those are the Nidim Shneshtabcha Behem Israel, and we should first make a bracha on these Zayin Nidim, and then on any other fruit. And even within the Zayim itself, we should first make a bracha on the, on the fruit which is mentioned closer to the word Eretz. And the question is, why is it so important? What difference does it make what, what I make the bracha on? 
the, the idea, the, the, the importance is the bracha itself. Afterwards we eat. The eating is not important. What's important is the bracha. Why does it make a difference what fruit I make the bracha on? But according to our explanation, that the bracha is chal on the fruit itself, and that fruit attains the status of a prusach bracha, and eating from that fruit is a kium and act of avodah Hashem, of worship, then we understand why it's important to focus the bracha on something which is more special. We have a similar Gemara also, on Dafalam Tesla and Beis 39b, in which the Gemara says that if one has different types of bread, bread made out of wheat and bread made out of barley, one should make the bracha on bread made out of wheat. If one has a complete loaf of bread and a cut, a slice of bread, one should prefer to making a bracha on the complete loaf. And again, we see that there's importance to what one makes the bracha on, which indicates that not only is the bracha per se an exclamation of our acceptance of of all Malchushamayim, but the bracha is chal on what we eat, on the food which we make the bracha on, the thing that we make the bracha on attains a certain status, and eating from that Pusha bracha is a kiyum, an act of what is Hashem. Everything that we said might be based on a Tosefta in Perdalad Halacha Aleph in Brachos. The Tosefta says as follows, Lo yitom adam klum ad sheivarech shneemar l'asem ha'aretz umloah which is basically the, the bite that we saw at the beginning of Ketan Varchim. One is not allowed to taste anything until he makes a bracha because it says, La Hashem the entire world belongs to God. If one gets benefited from this world without making a bracha, it's considered Mi'ila. Hanaf from Kodesh. Then the Tosefta continues, Ad she'atilo kol ha'mitzvot. One should not use his face, his hands, his feet, except for the purpose of worshipping God. In other words, what Josepha seems to be indicating is that there's a relationship between the first part of Josepha and the second part. Just like one should not eat to derive his own personal pleasure and benefit but rather one should make a bracha, so too, when we use our hands, our feet, our, our, our face, we should be, we should, what we should be doing is an act of worship, an act of Hashem. The question is, what's the connection between these two different statements? I made a bracha, but then I go ahead and I eat, and I eat for myself. How is that related to the second half of the Tosefta, which it says that we should focus all our actions on worship of Anavodat Hashem. Call Paul Hashem Of course, based on the idea that we developed, the answer is obvious. Because that's exactly what Bracha does. What Bracha does is it transforms and elevates the act of eating, the mundane of act of eating, and it makes it into an act of Avodat Hashem. It's no longer simply me deriving benefit from the world, which simply becomes permitted because of the Bracha, but rather, the bracha changes the status of the food which I eat 
And when I eat a prusa shabracha, a prusa which I would say has been sanctified by making a bracha, by blessing that particular piece of, of, of food, then when I eat it, that is an act of Vodat Hashem. I've elevated my, my act of eating into an act of worship. And that's exactly what the Zosetta continues to say, call Paul Hashem Everything that we do in this world, we should focus and make into an act of Vodat Hashem. And therefore, it's very, very important that our initial acts show the direction and our purpose in this world that basically we're here to be over Hashem. When we acknowledge that, when we begin, when we start our day from that perspective, from that light, then we continue to go ahead our everyday business. You have been listening to Rabbi Khan in the second shiur from the series on who called Salachot. And now for today, Sarachayomit. Today, Monday, is Tet B'tevet. Tomorrow is a Sarabetevet. Interestingly enough, Tet B'tevet is also a Ta'anit. In an ancient tradition, quoted by the Tur in the name of the Bahag and other Gaonic, uh, other Gaonic sources, there's a list of 24 days on which there's a custom to fast. It's not an obligatory fast, but there's a custom to fast. The way that later Poskim wrote it is that Chachamim uh, Mitanim especially righteous or learned people fast on these days it's available as a potential fast. One of those days is Tet B'Tevet the ninth day of Tevet one day before Yud B'Tevet which is an obligatory fast one of the fasts mentioned in the Gemara which dates from the Nevi'im. The other 24 the other 23 fasts there's a reason given for each one by the, Baha- by the Bahag. Interestingly enough, on Tet B'tevet, the Bahag says we don't know the reason. There's apparently an ancient tradition that says this was a day in which it's appropriate to fast, but the Bahag says he does not know the reason. There are Slichot in the old Slichot books for these fasts, and for the one for Tet B'tevet, it says explicitly that it's the day that Ezra HaSofer died in the Slichot that appear in the Sfardi sources, it says that Ezra Sofer died on Yud B'tevet, but because Yud B'tevet was a fast for other reasons, for reasons having to do with the Beit HaMikdash, they made an earlier day, they pushed the fast back one day, the one for Ezra HaSofer, which is interesting in and of its own right, because all of the fasts that we have, the fasts that are connected with the Beit HaMikdash, have multiple reasons. So there'd be nothing unusual to say that on Yud B'tevet we fast because Nebuchadnezzar laid siege to Yerushalayim in the days of the first Beit HaMikdash and also because Ezra Sofer died but apparently that wasn't felt to be appropriate in this case. The other multiple reasons, for instance, on Tisha B'Av which has five reasons, Shabbat B'Tamuz has five reasons, are all more or less connected to Chulban Habayit or to a loss of sovereignty or something that's in, in, in a longer range or wider sense connected to the destruction of Beit HaMikdash, the destruction of Eretz Yisrael. Um, apparently here the death of Ezra Sofer is not a national calamity. He was expected to die in any event. Uh, but Ezra Sofer has such an unusual significance, which I will immediately want to mention, that it doesn't connect to the siege of Jerusalem. And nonetheless, deserves a day of its own, and therefore, according to the study tradition, it was moved back to Tet B'tevet. In the Ashkenazic versions of the Yisrochot, it says that he actually died on Tevet. One word about Ezra Sofer, why is there a fast on the day of his death, on the day of no one else's death? 
the Gemara says, the Gemara in Sukkah says that Ezra Sofer was worthy of having the Torah been given on his, by his hands to his agency, but Moshe Rabbeinu had already done so. In other words, Chazal have an attitude towards Ezra Sofer that places him really way above other figures in rabbinic Jewish history. He, he literally, in terms of what he could have done, he was notena Torah, he was like Ezra Rabbeinu, like Moshe Rabbeinu. But the Torah had already been given. There are a number of other things that Ezra accomplished. He is credited with having changed the actual letters that are written in the Sefer Torah from the ancient Jewish script to the script called the Chazal Shurit, the one we use today, and, and various other takanot, ten decrees, ten enactments that he made. Uh, without knowing all the details, Ezra HaSofer is considered to be a second giver of the Torah, the way in which it was understood by many Rabbanim, as I heard from Rav Salvechik, was that Ezra HaSofer is not the originator, but the source of our connection to Torah Sheba'alpeh. Moshe Rabbeinu gave Torah Sheba'alpeh, but Ezra HaSofer, the first of the Sofrim, the first of not merely scribes who wrote the Torah, but also explained and, and explicated the Torah, so Ezra Sofer is the first of those rabbinic figures similar to what we do till this very day, the people who developed and gave us and brought us closer to Torah Shebaalpeh. And therefore the day of his death, since Torah Shebaalpeh, unlike Torah Shebaalpeh, depends on a human being. Moshe Rabbeinu gave us Torah Shebaalpeh, we have the Torah, even we don't have Moshe. But in Torah Shebaalpeh, Torah which is oral, the figure of the Rav, the figure of the person who is passing it on, is part of the Torah. So that the death of Ezra Sofer represents a loss in Torah Shebaalpeh itself. And I think that's the reason why there was a fast, not an obligatory fast, but nonetheless, a, a, the day itself has the aspect of a, uh, of a fast day. Uh, concerning tomorrow, a real fast, a Salabat uh, many people ask about who exactly is required to fast. So just to put it in short, the halakha, as we understand it, is that the three tzomot, the three fasts other than Tisha B'Av, Shiva Sabbat Tammuz, Tzom Gedalia, and Asabat Tevet, have a greater degree of leniency than Tisha B'Av. The most obvious and most important difference is that you don't fast 24 hours. Fast begins from the beginning of, of daytime, uh, from the beginning of dawn, an hour and a half approximately before sunrise, if uh, one intends to eat before that time, if one intends to uh, eat before that time, one can eat, one can eat. But the, the second uh, leniency is that if someone is suffering and there is a potential medical problem, not even the kind which we would normally deal with on Tisha B'Av or Yom Kippur, so you start fasting right away. People who are sick, in any sort of sickness, don't fast on these fasts. Uh, in recent years, I know many poskim have ruled uh, categorically. For instance, that uh, women who are pregnant towards the latter part of the pregnancy, and there's some potential degree that uh, fasting could bring on uh, could bring on labor, many poskim told them not to fast at all. Uh, some poskim have not uh, ruled that way. But the, the general meaning is to begin to fast, if there's a degree of discomfort that's beyond that which we associate with a healthy person fasting, especially if there's some pre-existing problem, 
some medical problem which could at all possibly be complicated by fasting. So the halacha says that a person does not need to fast on this day and shouldn't really even think twice about it. And this is not the Shabbat, it's Shulina Yom Kippur, and he doesn't fast on this day. A healthy person, this is a, a regular fast. What is the meaning of a fast? It's important to remember that a fast especially one like a Sabbath Tebet is not a day of mourning, it's a day of tshuva. The whole meaning of fasting is to do tshuva on this day, it's a day of self-introspection, uh, reflection. Without tshuva, the fast itself is, uh, is meaningless. Uh, not eating is merely a background to taking the time out to reflect on ourselves and to better our ways to do tshuva. The fast are spread out throughout the year because tshuva is not only one year on Yom Kippur, but something which one must do at a regular at a regular time. Shevachem Koltuv. This is Ezrabik from Gush Etzion. Tomorrow shiur on Tuesday will be given by myself. It will be the second shiur in the series on Jewish philosophy in the Middle Ages. And until then, Koltuv ve Kimitzion Tetzay Torah Udvar Hashem Yerushalayim.